Heavenly Father, we thank you that once again we, we can gather this morning as your children together in, in this place of worship, but more importantly, just as the body of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I thank you that you, have, that you saw fit to create this living organism, this church, your people, and that you created us to be in community and to gather and to worship and to be edified and to be encouraged and to be uh, corrected in all that, all that the church involves, Lord. And we thank you that you are doing a work in your body. We thank you, Lord, that you hear and answer prayer, and as, especially as we gather together and as we, as we corporately commit these things to you, we know that you have promised. And Lord, so we give you praise for, for what you are doing, what you have promised to do, and what you will continue to do. We thank you that we can surrender our every burden and our joys to you, knowing that you hear them and that you answer them. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us your word and you've given us your presence, that you have poured out your spirit upon your children. And as we saw last week, that your Holy Spirit came at Pentecost to indwell and to abide with all those who know you by grace through faith. Thank you that you are that ever-present helper, the, the parakletos, the comforter, the advocate. And so we cast ourselves, we lean upon you this morning. We ask that you would accomplish your purpose by your spirit, especially as we look into your word. And we pray that we would have hearts that are receptive to hear what you are saying to us today and that you would give us wills that are pliable in your hand to do what you desire. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles if you would and turn to Psalm chapter 13. The title of my message this morning is Walking Through Struggles Biblically. Walking Through Struggles Biblically. Over the past several months, there is no doubt that we have faced struggles, that you have faced struggles. If you are an exception to the rule, and this pandemic and the economic downturn, and the current uncertainty in the world, and the unrest in Western civilization has not affected you at all, then congratulations. Your struggles are yet to come, because we all face struggles. Yet whether it is because of our current global situation or your own unique situation, we face difficulties, and we will face difficulties. Now, I have preached it seems an awful lot, not exclusively, but I preached an awful lot about that subject in this church. Perhaps that is because we have faced a lot of difficult situations. Probably no one here is able to say life has been easy, or at least not life has always been easy. For many of you, it has been the exact opposite. Life has been difficult. And I would say Life has been especially difficult as we walk the Christian walk in a world of sin. Because as believers, we should have a proper perspective, right? And as having a proper perspective, we should realize the damage and the curse that sin has brought. And as we try to be a witness in a world that ultimately is full of darkness, we should realize that it is a struggle. 
that we as believers, the moment we trust Christ, do not begin to have it all easy. Often it actually works the other way around. Because who God loves, he chastens, he prunes, he corrects, he directs, and it is not always comfortable. It's not enjoyable at times. It may be profitable, but not easy. One of the consequences of living in a world of sin is brokenness. We live in a world of brokenness. You're broken. I'm broken. We were made in the image of God to be in right relationship with God. We maintain that image, but that relationship was broken in the fall. And so when man fell, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, what happened? The earth was cursed. They endure cursing through the earth and upon themselves as well. So life is not easy. It is difficult at times, intensely, painfully difficult. I'm sure every one of us at one point or another have echoed Paul's statement in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, where he says, We also who have the first fruit of the Spirit, that is, we have been indwelt by the Spirit, that is, all believers, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We groan within ourselves, awaiting the redemption of our body. Because we're in a body of sin right now. And we look forward to the day when we will be set free from even the presence of sin. It's with eager anticipation, and yet it's still right now a time of groaning. Job, who knew more than his fair share of suffering, said in Job chapter 5, verse 7, Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. In other words, as certainly as sparks rise from a fire, trouble stalks mankind. He also said, man who is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He was real optimistic, wasn't he? (laughs) No, he was a realist. Man who is born of a woman, in other words, every single person, their days are full of trouble. Now, perhaps we would say, well, Job was just disillusioned by his personal experience. I'm inclined to believe that Job actually had a better grasp of reality of life than we do. He knew just how much trial a man can endure. Yes, life is also full of great occasions, and we should not downplay them. We should not minimize them. We definitely should not forget them or reject them. It's full of much happiness as well. But sin has entered the world, and it resulted in the curse upon the earth and mankind, and so we face troubles. The question is not if, but when we will face them, and more importantly, when we face them, how will we respond to them? How will we respond to them? How can I walk through struggles biblically? In Psalm chapter 13, we will observe the psalmist David's journey through a struggle. Now, we don't know which specific struggle this was, whether it was when he was running from Saul, which was a massive struggle, or when he was running from Absalom, I mean, two major periods in his life when he was fleeing for his life, or whether it was the rest of his life. Remember, David was known as the king of war, right? He was always at battle with some other nation. with some, And so in the midst of one of these terrible conflicts, in the midst of one of these troubles upon David, he cries out and, and then, I'm assuming, pens the psalm later. We see here an internal and an external struggle, and we mark the progress through that struggle. And then I would like to see if the procession or the progress that is through that struggle can be applied to us.
And if you were alert last week, you may pick up on a few ideas that were presented in that message, in this message. That's simply because I had actually been working on this message when I took a break from it to write a Pentecost message, and some of the same thoughts carried through both messages. I'll trust that that's leading the Holy Spirit and maybe partially just where my mind is at as well. Psalm chapter 13, starting in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. I see three divisions in this psalm. So it breaks down fairly nicely for a sermon. And I've tried to make these three divisions easy so that you can remember them. So that the next time you're walking through a struggle, you can go back to the progress that you saw in Psalm chapter 13. It's really simple. We see first despair, second we see prayer, and third we see praise. Despair, prayer, praise. They almost all rhyme, so you can remember that, right? Despair, prayer, praise. And I'm not saying that Psalm chapter 13 is going to cover every single one of your struggles or troubles. Nor am I saying that we can always find a a nice little three points that we can fit our struggles or trials into. It doesn't work that way. We have experience which may fall outside of that. I also don't want you leaving thinking that this is an instant remedy. Well, I was in despair, so I prayed and everything was roses after that, right? That's not how it works either. But as you walk through difficulties, there's a progression in this passage which is important for us to remember and perhaps even apply to our struggles. He starts off with despair. It's not a bad spot to start off. Don't we often start there, especially when we're crying out to God. We're very quick, it seems, to, to go to God in despair uh, rather than praise, we're, at least myself anyways. I'm far quicker to run to him when things are going wrong than when everything is going well. But the psalmist starts off in despair, and he cries out to God, how long? As a matter of fact, he cries out to God four times. How long? How long? How long, God? How long? How long? And I don't know about yourself, but I can find myself in that psalm. At times, questioning God and crying out to God, God, how long? How long will this be? We've each been there at some point. How long will these restrictions last? That's a simple one, right? It's a light one. How long will my child stray from the Lord? How long will this sin haunt me? How long will I struggle? How long will this health issue burden me? How long, how long, God, how long? And we can each relate to this questioning of David crying out to God, how long? And specifically, David cries out, how long? About four different things. First, he cries out, Lord, how long will you forget me? Ever been there? We experience some kind of loss in our lives and we turn to the Lord and all that we seem to hear is silence or so we feel. We're desperate in need at some point and we cry out, God, where are you? We cry out as David, God, 
how long will you forget me forever? God, have you forgotten me? We can see that cry expressed kind of anyways in, in Martha in the New Testament. Remember when shortly after Lazarus passes away, Christ comes, and what's one of the first things that Martha says? Lord, if you had been here. That's, that's almost a how long. God, if, and, and why, and, and how long, and what would it take? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's, that's pretty serious. And we find ourselves in that position. God, if, if you had been here, how long, how long have you forgotten me? How long will you forgot, forget me? Where are you in this moment of need? How long? The second how long, he says, God, how long will you hide your face from me? That seems even more personal. Perhaps it's not just through a trying time that we feel we are searching for God and he has forgotten us, but even maybe in the normal daily happenings of life, we go through what we call dry spells, right? Where we don't sense God. We go through lonely times where we feel that he has turned his face away from us. Perhaps in those times you've tried to invest yourself in study or you've tried to invest yourself in, in prayer or you've tried to invest yourself in praise and song and you just feel like there's nothing. I'm, I'm facing a blank wall. I'm getting no response. And we cry out similar to what David did. Lord, how long will you turn your face from me? I, I want to see you. I want to know you. I want, I want that intimacy and that connection and yet I don't sense it. And, and in one way, this is even sadder than the first how long. Because it, it questions the very core of our relationship with God. And we should not seek God for an experience, but knowing God is definitely experiential. We should not seek God for a feeling, but knowing God should definitely involve feelings. And when we don't have that experience and we don't necessarily have that feeling at this moment, then we cry out, God, why do I not see your face? Why do I not see your presence? Why do I not feel your hand? Whatever the case might be, we can relate to that as we cry out with David, Lord, how long? In regards to these first two how longs, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you that they are subjective rather than objective. In other words, they are based on our feelings rather than on reality. Now, it is true if you're living in sin that there may be, that there is. If you're living in sin, there's a barrier between you and God. That's something that you have put in place so that the relationship is not the way it should be. But if you are not living in sin, if you've confessed sin and you're living in righteousness before him and you still feel that he has forgotten you or that he has turned your face from you, I want to tell you something this morning that is a feeling and it is not a fact. And there is a big difference. It is subjective. It is personal. It may even be experiential. But it is not true. We looked at that last week. He has promised never to leave you nor forsake you. You may not feel like right now it is as intimate as you would like it to be. But he has not turned away from you. He hasn't. He is there. Trust him. Those are the times where you trust what he has said, even if it doesn't line up with how you feel. We trust him. How long? How long? He has two other how longs here. Uh, these ones are actually more real or more actual than subjective. 
The next one, he says, how long will I take counsel in my soul? The NIV puts it this way. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? That one's pretty relatable as well. Have we ever had an ongoing mental struggle? Ever wrestled with our thoughts either in controlling them or in overcoming discouragement or some other sorrow-related thought pattern? Have we ever struggled in that area? Our minds easily go into turmoil. I think perhaps more easily than in any other area of conflict. We have inner turmoil first, usually before we have an external turmoil, don't we? There's a wrestling match that's going on inside and David cries out, Lord, how long am I going to have to wrestle through this? We wrestle with controlling our minds. We wrestle with having wills that are surrendered to God. We wrestle with spiritual matters, a child that has gone astray or a friend that is living in sin. We grieve our own propensity for sin. We hate this sin-filled body or at least how weak it is to give in to selfish cravings, this inner turmoil that is taking place, this mental anguish. And this mental anguish does not go away the greater our sanctification. In other words, it doesn't grow away as we grow closer to God. I think actually in some ways it grows greater because we are more aware of our depravity. The closer we are to God, the more we realize just how sinful we are. And so this wrestling match continues. This, for lack of a better term, self, self-loathing of our sin nature. And that's a, a spiritual, but also it's a mental anguish that is taking place. That we wrestle with this. How long, O oh Lord, must this battle go on in my mind? Basically is what he is saying. Even in the midst of that battle, I, pay, I pray, though, that you know the peace of God that passes all understanding, that you don't live overwhelmed by that battle in your mind. The fourth how long, and I will come to some response to the how long after. Okay, right now I realize we're just looking at despair. But the fourth how long that David cries out, Lord, is how long will my enemy triumph over me? For David, this cry was, was real and physical. How long, Lord, will you keep me in the wilderness running from Saul or running from Absalom or terrorized by this conflict that is taking place? How long will nations rise against Israel and I have to go to war? And so it was literal and it was physical for David when he cried this. And yet there is a sense in which this is spiritual as well. Because he is saying, Lord, how long will, will the enemy be victorious? And there are times where we say, Lord, how long will... Will evil be victorious? And we live in a world where it seems like evil is winning. Well, that's true. And to a certain context, it's, it's reality. Evil is prevailing. Now it has not won, won and it will not win the battle. <laughs> but we seem to be losing ground, spiritually speaking at times. And we cry out, Lord, how long? How long will those who hate God rise up against him and seek to put him and his followers to shame? How long will lies be taught and deception be perpetuated? And there's so much of it in the world. How long will good be called evil and evil be called good? How long will mankind spit in the face of God and practice all kinds of wickedness? We must realize we live in a wicked world. How long will hatred and violence and abuse be permitted? How long before the righteous judge of all steps in and rights the wrongs? And we cry out in the same manner, Lord, how long? Have you not read a news article or a social media post recently in questioned? God, how long will you let this go on? God, how long? Have you not wept over an injustice? Have you not seen 
the blatant attempts going on in the world today to destroy the things that we believe to be true and right and good. And we ask God, why do you allow this? From the moment sin first entered the Garden of Eden until Christ ushers in his eternal kingdom and righteousness and truth, that question will be asked. Even the saints of God who are slain for their faith during the great tribulation cry out to God from heaven itself. As God is pouring out his wrath upon the earth, they cry out asking God how long until his vengeance is accomplished? How long until justice falls? Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 to 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Right up until Jesus Christ comes back in victory, the saints are going to be crying out, How long? How long until you come? How long until you judge? How long until justice falls? The answer to that, actually, the question how long is found in Second Peter in regards to God's justice. It says in chapter 3, But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the word of God, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The day of judgment on evil, the vindication of the righteous is, is coming, but God is long-suffering. He is bearing with sin and with sinners because he desires that they would come to repentance. God is giving this wicked world every opportunity to turn to him from their sinfulness. So the next time you think or ask, how long will you let this evil go on, God? Remember that God is gracious and long-suffering as much to every other sinner as he has been to you. He's long-suffering with you. He's long-suffering with others, desiring that all would turn to him in repentance. All of that... The how long, Lord, is all the first point in Psalm 13. There are cries that ascend to our loving Heavenly Father. Cries of prayers that ascend to Him as we cry out. And I would encourage you, and, and that's something to note here, that cries of how long are not despair out of self-pity. Okay? It is a cry of despair that is expressed to the Father in prayer. There's a big difference. Because if you just live in self-pity, your despair is going to be unprofitable. But if your despair is actually a cry of help to God, then he intervenes. He accomplishes purpose, even through those how long moments. So we cry out in despair as a prayer, which takes us to our second point, prayer. Here, David prayed specifically to God that he would intervene. He has expressed the pain in his heart and now he asks God to intervene. He doesn't ask God, he's already asked him how long is this going to take in each of these four things. He says, how long, how long, how long? So he's done expressing that, but then he prays specifically in verse uh, three and four. He says, consider and hear me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes. 
lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. He prays specifically. Now David is praying that God would rescue him from a physical threat. He asks God to intervene or else two things are going to happen to him. First, he's going to die. And second, his enemies will rejoice at his death. So for David, this is not just platitudes. This isn't just cliches. This is fairly serious. He's saying, God, if you don't intervene, I'm dead and evil will rejoice. He believes it. He knows that to be true. Now, prayerfully, we won't face a situation where we have to cry out to God and say, God, if you don't intervene right now, they're going to kill me and they're going to rejoice at it. Prayerfully, that won't happen. But if we move past the outcome that David was praying God would rescue him from, back to the prayer that he prays in light of that threat, we see something that is beautiful there in specifically how he asked God to intervene. It is a good prayer anytime we are in despair. It is a good prayer, regardless of what causes or what the potential outcome for that despair might be. Three aspects to this prayer of David. He asked God to consider him, he asked God to hear him, and he asked God to enlighten him. Some of your translations may break that down a little bit differently, but it's the same concept. God, he first asks, consider me, look on me, the NIV says. That's a good place to start when you're crying out to God, how long? God, God, are you there? God, look on me, consider me. God, hear me, and then that's included there, and, and answer me is also included in part of that. God, consider me. And does God consider us? He does. When you cry out how long and at every other point, he looks upon you. God looks upon you in love. In Psalm chapter 139, verse 17 to 18, it says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, that is God's thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. He looks upon you. If I should count them, this is his thoughts towards me, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. He considers you. He looks upon you. Innumerably, immeasurably, he looks upon you. He considers you and he loves you. In the midst of those how longs, be reassured that God knows, God hears, and God loves you infinitely. He looks upon you. The second part he cries out is, God, hear me, or God, answer me. We want to know that God hears and answers our prayer, and he does. Your prayer ascends to the throne room of God, and he not only hears, but he delights in your prayer, and he promises to answer. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 to 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. God hears and answers prayer as we pray according to his will. Do you realize the wonder of that promise? God hears and will respond. God hears and will respond. Not might respond, but will respond. Now perhaps it's not in the way that you want him to respond. But that doesn't change the fact that he hears, he considers you, he looks upon you, 
and he answers. And it is for your greatest good, this answer that is from God, regardless of the despair that you're in, his answer is for your greatest good and for his glory. You may not feel it is like at the time. You may think that there's something else that is better for me than God's answer for me in this situation. He hears and he answers and he provides what is perfect because it is from his hand. The last thing that David prays is that his eyes would be enlightened. Now, in the immediate context, David is praying that God would breathe new life into himself. The days are dark and they're dismal and David fears that they are drawing to an end in death unless the Lord penetrates the darkness with a ray of his glory. But the idea of having eyes that are enlightened is to have eyes that see things in the reality of God's greatness, to be illumined to the truth of the word of God and the faithfulness of God. It is to be awoken to see things as they truly are. We need to have eyes that are enlightened by God. If you are in the midst of despair or the next time you run into a situation that's the the midst of despair, you need to have eyes that are enlightened by God. Because if you do not have eyes that are enlightened by God, you will only see the despair. And God can illumine that. And so when he prays, your God, enlighten my eyes. Make me see things as they truly are in your eyes. Let me see things with spiritual eyes rather than than just looking on the physical or the external. God, illumine me. Enlighten me. Help me to see and to truly know it as it is. In the state of the world right now, we could, have, we could easily have eyes that only see the evil, that only see the hurt and the pain and the destruction. But we need to have spiritual eyes to see God at work, to see his promises being kept, to see his final victory drawing near. The darker the days grow, the greater the need to have eyes that are enlightened by God. And look at what happens as David prays for God to consider him, to hear him, and to enlighten him, especially that enlightening part. God does consider David. He looks upon him. God does hear and answer David's cry. And God wakes him up to things as they truly are by breathing this new life into him, by illuminating him, by enlightening him. When you cry out to God to look upon you and to answer you and to enlighten you, regardless of your situation of despair, he will do it for you. And when he does it, as he did for David, you will respond prayerfully in the same way that David responded, with praise. In other words, when God opens your eyes to things as they truly are, regardless of your despair, you will respond to him in praise. You respond in praise. Even just working through our despair, and God's response to our prayers, we have already had our perspective changed. We are having our eyes enlightened by his grace. We see that we can and we are trusting in God's mercy as David was. After all, it's only by God's mercy, by his mercy that we're even alive to enjoy and to suffer. It is by his mercy, his great overwhelming mercy that it is through that that we can boldly enter the throne room of grace to receive help in time of need. We are trusting in God's mercy. As a matter of fact, we are completely, unreservedly dependent upon that mercy. In the how longs that we cry, as they are a prayer to God, we realize that we are helpless and hopeless on our own. 
But in those how longs as well, we realize that his mercy is sufficient in each and every situation. His grace provides all that is needed. So we trust him. We surrender our burden and we trust him. And why wouldn't we? Nothing else is trustworthy. Something else to be reminded of as we're going through despair. To what are you going to turn? To whom are you going to turn? Nothing else is trustworthy but him. As David, we have our eyes enlightened as we turn and look upon Jesus Christ. And I pray that as you pray, as you cry out to him, that you no longer fear that or feel that his face is turned from you, but that you do experience the intimacy of his presence. And so you are given cause to rejoice. David says, I rejoice in your salvation. I have trusted in your mercy. And so I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So we will sing for he has dealt bountifully with us. He has dealt graciously with us. He has poured out his goodness upon us. The best route from despair to praise is to have a change of perspective through prayer. Take your eyes off your situation. Take your eyes off your longing. Take your eyes off your how long, Lord, question and turn to Jesus Christ. That isn't some magic recipe, but it is a proven truth that when God gets bigger in our eyes, our problems get smaller in our eyes. Turn to him. What is the how long that you're wrestling with today? What is the despair that may be drowning you? Maybe it's a small thing. Maybe it is a life-altering, absolutely crushing thing. Regardless of what it is, surrender it in prayer. And trust God to turn that despair, that despairing cry of how long, into praise. Whether he changes your situation or not, but change your perspective. He hears you, he answers you, and he will enlighten you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. The promises of your word are true and we can rest upon them even when we may not feel or we may not experience it as we expect to. We know you are true and your word is true. So we trust what you have said and we ask that you will look upon us, consider us today, that you will hear and answer and that you will enlighten us, that you will illumine us to the truth that truth that you are glorious and majestic and all good things are from your hand, that truth that we are hopeless and helpless without you, the truth that we can rest confidently in you, that we can trust in you regardless of how it looks, regardless of how it feels, the truth that you are in control and you do all things well, the truth that evil may may rise up for a moment, but you are eternally victorious. Lord, cause us to see these truths. And so rejoice. May the words of our mouth, may the meditation of our heart, may it be a praise song to you, may it be beautiful in your eyes as we worship you because you have enlightened us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.